0: So, a few days ago, Donald Trump decided to go campaign in Florida. He wanted to make sure he gets the Floridian vote. So, he went to a home for senior citizens, what they call a home of assistant living. And as he walked in, he encountered a 95, what looked like a 95-year-old woman. And he looks at her and he says, do you know who I am? And she says, son, I don't know who you are. He says, look, look again. It's impossible. You must know who I am. And she says, I'm so sorry, my little boy, but I don't know who you are. He says, how can you not know who I am? I am the celebrity today, I am on television all of the time, and look at my hairdo, look at my height, look at my stature, hear the way I speak, nobody doesn't know me in the world. She says, sir, I don't know who you are. He gets very, very upset, he starts hollering, this can't be, how could you not know who I am? Nobody is ignorant of my existence and of my identity. Another woman probably a hundred years old, walks over to him and says, relax, relax. This happens very often around here. We'll call the head nurse and she'll tell you who you are. (laughs) Don't feel bad. You're not the first and you will not be the last around there asking who you are. So today, tonight... Our theme is, oh, there's more source sheets. If anybody needs source sheets, there's more source sheets in the back. Just pass it around for the men and for the women, please. Thanks. Thanks, Jason. Okay. Tonight our theme is in basics of Amuna number three, focused on addressing the question of who am I? Who I am based on the fundamentals, the basics of Emunah of Jewish faith. In last class, we tried to explore somewhat a very profound topic, and that is, what is the role of Emunah in Judaism? What is the contribution of Emunah in Yiddishkeit? It's not like some might think it's here to replace intellect, to supplant reason. It comes because of insecurity or fear to grapple with human cu- curia- curiosity, inquiry, questions? Not at all. Reason is valuable. Reason is cherished. Reason is a gift of God. Reason must be used. Rationality is one of the unique components of the human being of the Tzalem Where reason ends, that's where faith takes over. Meaning, the role and function of Amun is not to substitute reason... But rather to allow, as we explain, the human being, to allow the Jew to experience the divine, to have an intimate, firsthand experience of the reality of Hashem, that's, that's the role of Amun. And this is the birthright of every Jew. It's not something one has, one does not have. By nature of you, who you are, it's something inherent. It's something innate. It's something that's there. It may be plugged. It may be eclipsed. It may be concealed. But it's a sixth sense of the soul, like any sense. It may be completed, completely covered up, and it may be eclipsed by many forces within or without. But the reality of a is there. It's a state of the neshama. It's the state of the Jewish soul, which... Has eyes that perceive the reality of Hashem. It's a chelik al mal, It's a part part of the divine. They tell uh, a cute anecdote that there was uh, this temple in Indiana that uh, heard that right across the street somebody is planning to build a big bar, a huge bar, and the worshippers at the temple were very upset because this would, of course, change all of the dynamics. So they tried to petition the government and they tried to petition politicians and activists to try to stop it to no avail. So they started to gather every week in prayer and pray to God that he shouldn't allow this bar to open up. But the plans were going well and the construction was on the way. And right as it was complete and the owner of the bar was about to open it up, a light, it was a storm and a lightning struck the bar, burnt it down to the ground. With Simcha and Sosn, they were very happy in the temple. But a few weeks later, they got a summons to the court. The owner of the bar sued the congregation because they prayed and they didn't stop praying. And as a result of that, they owe him compensation for what he lost. They put up a defense and they said it's ridiculous for anybody to assume that our prayers caused his bar to burn down. The judge was examining both sides. He was reading through the case. And then he turns to the court. He says, listen, I don't know yet how I'm going to decide this case. If the congregation is guilty or not guilty. But what I find is something very astounding. And that is, it seems like the owner of the bar believes in prayer. And the congregants in the temple absolutely don't believe in prayer He said, I find it to be very interesting, very funny. (laughs) In that sense, Emunah is the inheritance of every single Jewish soul by the nature of it being a neshama, of it being a soul. And thus the role of Seichel and Emunah are two very different things. And even if somebody has doubts, they have doubts because of their reason, because of rationality. Life is filled with questions. The universe is filled with mysteries, with enigma. There's pain, there's challenges, etc. The amunna remains pure. The amunna remains undiluted, uncompromised. That, if in a few sentences, was a summation of what we discussed last week. Tonight I asked this question. How is this state of Amunna expressed? How does it play itself out? How is it manifested? is it really, does it really belong practically to every person? Or to put it in different words, if emuna is the state of the soul, what does the soul look like? If somebody can take a picture of the Neshama, what would it look like? What does this Neshama, that we call a chilek eleikam Mal mamish, a piece of God, what exactly does it look like? Or what does a life with the Neshama look like? What does a life of emuna look like? If somebody is in touch with this dimension of themselves, what would their day-to-day life look like? What does it mean, in other words, to live with your soul? To live, to live with your emuna. How do I know if I'm in touch with it? How do I know if I'm in touch with my soul? It's there, but how do I know if I'm consciously connected to it? So, we're going to explore tonight, Beisr Hashem, five features of a faith-based life five features of a soul-based life. Or five features of faith. Five features in which the quality of Amunah, the truth of Amuna, would express itself in a person's life, a person who's in touch with this dimension of themselves, which is there. But they may be in touch with it, they may not be in touch with it. And they're all in the word of Amuna. Amunna, as you know, is a very strange word in the Hebrew language in Lashen Kodesh. and has many different interpretations that don't seem connected. But we'll soon see that each one of their name, each one of the meanings of the word is representing another feature of the way Amunna manifests itself. The first is, and you look in your source sheet, the first is, let me tell you what these five are and then you'll see the connection to Amunna. I'll say them in Hebrew and then in English. Oiz, Emes, Dveikus, Simcha, Av, confidence, integrity, divine intimacy, joy, and love. If you look, the word is can be understood as imun, like they say in Hebrew, imun atzmi, self-confidence, imun as in confidence, ois. It could be translated as ne'monus, as we say, emes ve'munah, truthfulness, honesty, integrity. Confirmation. Amen. Keil melech neemon. Truthfulness. Another meaning of emunah is, we say in the Megillah of Esther, kasher hoisa, ba'amna itoi. Ba'amna itoi. She was faithful. She was loyal. Loyal loyal to Mardachai. Another meaning of emunah is from the word umnus. Uman is a, a, a craftsman. Umnus is 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 a craft, a trade, or we call art. You say, this is maisa umnus, maisa umon, right, in halacha. This is a craftsman's work. You say, umnus, this is a piece of art. That's also a muna And then there's umon, as in the Megillah again, Vaihi, oimen es hadasa. He was like the stepmother of hadasa. He nurtured hadasa. Oimen, like an Onaimenes, how do you say anoimenes? Oimenes. Uh, she, she nurtures him she nurses him she raises him in this case it's a he she had no father and mother and somebody was there there helping uh, Hadassah blossom what's the connection between all of these all of these meanings in the word "amuna? so we have confidence we have integrity MS we have uh, dvekus. faithfulness, loyalty we have simcha, joy, connected to Umnus, And finally we have uh, ahav, love, There's a pasik, we say it every morning. David HaMelech says, oiz v'chedva bim koimoy. In his space, in Hashem's space, there is oys and chedva. Oiz means strength, confidence. Chedva means joy. How do you recognize the space of Hashem? two features. Ois confidence, and chedva. This is the first feature of a soul-based life. The first feature of a faith-based life. This is the first symptom of somebody who's in touch with this quality, with this aspect, with this dimension of themselves, the chileke Mal. Number one, confidence. Imun. emuna as in imun. True confidence in themselves. Because, because, what does Aiz really mean? Aiz means that you have a person who is truly secure, truly confident within themselves. They need not validation externally from outside. This is a person who's never involved in people pleasing. They're not here to please other people. To make sure that they say or do the right thing so that certain people or groups or clubs should like them. They don't say things in order to make themselves suitable to the environment, in order to fit in. They don't have to copy other people. You know the expression, all of us are born originals, most of us die as copies. The person of true inner confidence is comfortable in his or her originality and need not become at some point a copy of somebody else. If I am involved in people-pleasing, if I am seeking validation from outside, I am not in touch with that part of myself. I'm not in touch with with my soul, with my neshama. From the neshama perspective, a compliment doesn't save me, a compliment doesn't make me, a compliment doesn't create me, and criticism does not destroy me. I don't melt. Of course, we all love compliments. You should get as many compliments as you can, especially from your wife, if it's possible, or from your husband. There's nothing like getting a compliment from your wife and from your shvigir. Nothing wrong with giving compliments or getting compliments. But the question is, am I desperately yearning for the compliment? Am I desperately fearful of the criticism? So somebody who lacks a true internal sense of self, it's the validation that makes me a human being, makes me a man, makes me a woman. It's the criticism that can destroy me, gets me angry, derails me off my track. But somebody who has inner eyes, they may enjoy and appreciate the compliment, but they don't seek that validation because they have a wholesomeness. And what does it have to do with? If one truly realizes and makes peace with the fact that they, ha- they are at Selim Alekim. Furthermore, a Chelek Alekam Imal. So you think a compliment to Hashem makes him? And criticism destroys him. He would have been gone long ago. The Chelek mal Imal exists essentially. It exists innately. It exists essentially and innately because it exists. And therefore... It need not copy, it need not please, it need not that type of validation. There's a vort of the Mizucha Magad. Mizucha Magad once said, It says in Perkayavas, Yihvoid literally the covet, the honour that your friend the, the honour of your friend should be as precious to you as your own covet. In other words, I should treat another person and be sensitive to their respect as I'm sensitive to my own covet, to my own respect. Ask the Mazistra Magid a vintage question for the Mizritsha Magid, and that is, that's really the pinnacle of Pirkei My covet is an absolute necessity. If you mess with my covet, forget about it. We're not on speaking terms for the rest of my life. We're saying In if it says hakina the Gemara says baba man the boy man the person who wants to be the is it's extra piety extra chassidus. so you're saying the covet of your friend should be as khavif as your own covet you would think this person maybe transcended a little bit of covet so the Mazuchim Magad answers and he says the meaning of the Mishnah means something very different. Yihich Void Chavircha Alecha Keshalach <laughs> means the honor that your friend bestows upon you should be as valuable as the honor you bestow upon yourself. Imagine, imagine, I'll give a personal example. If I go to an event and the introduction is lousy. Sometimes you have an introducer. He knows how to introduce. I told you once. Reb Chaim Shmulevich, that's how the Mir Rosh Yeshiva once said that when they call him up for siddur kedushin to a chuppah to do a chuppah, so the master of ceremonies gets on the mic and he says, "Isma me mechabit, the Rosh Hashiva, rabban shall kol bnei hador, gon hador, mehemet toizen to toizen to talmidim arbitze Toira. One of the gre- gre- greatest Rosh yeshivas who ever lived, Reb Chaim Shmulevich, lit the Sarah Toira for siddur kedushin. So, Chaim had a good sense of humor, he says, You think I go up? I don't go up. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear it again. Why should I go up? <laughs> he does it a second time. I go up, right? <laughs> he was explaining a Gemara in Sanhedrin with Yeravan ben Nevot, the But So, imagine, imagine a situation. So, the introduction is lousy. The introduction is lousy. So I'm already not feeling good about myself, Rahman al Then I go up and I finish. And there's barely an applause. Never mind no standing ovation. People don't even notice. They were sleeping. They were texting. So I go home. I feel empty. So what do I do? I decide I'm going to replay the whole experience and I'll give myself the honor I need it. So I give myself an introduction. And of course, it can be limitless with praise. Nobody's watching. And then I do the speech over, I just do it a little shorter. So I shouldn't fall asleep. And then when I finish the speech, I give myself a standing ovation for 10 minutes. Right? So everybody understands if you're dealing with a normal person, even people who are desperate <laughs> for validation and compliments and cover, don't do this. Why? It's meaningless. It's a, let's say let's on this. It's a mockery, it means nothing. I'm gonna give myself a standing ovation, I'm gonna give myself applause, I'm gonna give myself nice titles. What's the what's what it's worthless, it doesn't mean anything. Says the magid The cover that other people give you has exactly the same value. Exactly the same value, it means exactly as much as the cover you give yourself. And one of the explanations is. Because a person who's really in touch with themselves, meaning with their soul, with their chile kele mal, your compliment doesn't make me. It doesn't do anything significant. It doesn't contribute something. If it's authentic, it's authentic. If it's inauthentic, it doesn't make me, just like your criticism does not destroy me. I'm not dependent on it. I don't operate on that level of consciousness. I don't live in that zone. And if I'm living in that zone, I am that person who's craving the validation, people pleasing, copying whatever it may be. It means I am in touch with a different dimension of myself. I'm not in touch with that part of the self where there is a moon with his kalakami mal, and that's why there's no imun. That's why there's no real confidence. There is a weakness. And by the way, when a person has this, it's not by the way. A person is capable of being there for somebody else. A person is capable of giving of giving to somebody else. Meaning, if, uh, if your spouse, say, your wife or your husband says something sharp to you, criticizes you, or a friend or a colleague or a partner, so you'll see different people respond in different ways. Some people respond by attacking back. They attack in return. Or even if they don't attack aggressively, they don't explode, Im- they implode. Inside, they attack the other person. In other words, they stoop down to the same place that the attacker is. They also go down to that place. What does it come from? It comes from the fact that I needed you to validate me. And instead, you're challenging me. You're criticizing me. It shakes me up. So what happens? What happens is I am now in a very weak position, a very defensive position, and I'm busy attacking you back. But somebody who has true confidence, somebody who has inner eyes, somebody who has imun, somebody who is in touch with their soul, then if you have an ani, then you can become ayin. Ani is the same letters of ayin. Somebody who has a real eye can suspend themselves and really listen to the other person and actually objectively analyze what is the other person going through. I don't have to define myself based on your position or based on your words, or based on your emotions, I can actually listen. What is this person going through, and how can I perhaps help them? I can actually listen to them. I could suspend myself and be there for them. A fellow comes home at night from work, a guy tells me, comes home from work, and his Rebutson tells him how difficult the day was. This is my Sambachol The day was difficult, the day was stressful. Immediately, and she goes on explaining to him how difficult and challenging the day was. You often have two responses. One fellow gets very upset. He gets very upset, and the other fellow can actually listen and empathize, which is all she wants. Why does a person get upset? So often the reason is, not always, but often the reason is, because he came home and he wanted validation. He wanted his wife to tell him that he's the most handsome fellow in all of Muncie. He's the most brilliant guy on the planet. She appreciates his work infinitely. His tie matches his suit, something special. He's something unique. Instead, he has to hear how difficult her day was. Because if essentially I need that validation, I need you to compliment me, to fill my void, I can't be here for you. I always have to take and take and take and take because... There's no wholesome eye. but if I have an inner wholesome eye, I could say, this person had a hard day, they're sharing it with me well as was, so listen. Empathize. What happened? When you have an ani, you could suspend yourself and be there for another person. Even if they're not only complaining about what they went, even if they're actually criticizing you. So what? Even if they say something strong, something powerful, think about it. how do we respond? Do we right away, become defensive and attack? because we're in a weak state. Or you're actually wholesome. Somebody said what they said. You'll examine it. You'll listen to it. You'll maybe try to understand where they're coming from, etc. It's brought in Svarim that one of the differences between Kedusha and not Kedusha, holiness and the antithesis of holiness is, Kedusha could be a mashpia. Klipa, the opposite of Kedusha, is always a mechabal. Will not give, will receive. Why? It all has to do with the same thing. Somebody who's wholesome and confident, They can give. Somebody who's not confident they could never give, they can't afford to give. Because I have a bottomless pit that I need to fill. So if I don't have essential confidence, I always need to take and take and take. I'm always parasitic. When I have a wholesomeness, now I can afford to suspend myself and actually give to you. And what really has confidence in life? Only that which is connected to the source of life. So it feels that it has essential value. It's not going to melt away. But something that doesn't have a real connection with the source of life, it never feels completely wholesome. It has to feed off every situation. It can't really be there for another person. That's feature number one, a life of, a life of oiz, a life of imun. Which brings us now to another another uh, another feature and that is you see number 2 you have ms ve emuna emuna from the word truthfulness ms like we say in of ms ve emuna calls ois kayam or like you'll say ne'emonus, ish ishnemon a truthful person Honest integrity. This is a second feature of the soul. Meaning, somebody who is in touch with their soul truly, with their amuna, with this state in themselves, this person will first of all never lie, and this person is not afraid of revealing their own truth to other people. This is a person who will not live in cover ups. This is a person who can be vulnerable. This is a person who can be very honest. Why is it that so many of our conversations are full of cover-ups? How many conversations do you have with people that are truly, truly honest? People really, really talk about their own truth, their own MS, their own penimius. It's often rare to find such conversations and such relationships. Sometimes it's so bad that people don't even know that they're doing it. They're not even aware of how much they're covering up, how much they're blocking. But all the conversations are based on rote, on habit. One person is so entrenched in this mode of conversation and communication that a person often doesn't even know how dishonest they are. And doesn't necessarily mean that they're actively lying. They may not be lying, but there's nothing truthful coming out. What does this have to do with? In many situations, it has to do with a very simple but a very profound truth. And that is, if I communicate my true feelings, my true emotions, I am afraid that my identity, my image, will be belittled in your eyes. You will never look at me the same again. So I have to walk around life with masks that will make me believe that other people will feel that I am perfect, or close to perfect. It's very hard for me to be vulnerable because when the masks are removed, what will remain of me? What will remain? And I may be terrified of what will remain. What is this based on? Once again, do I feel that I really exist? Although I feel that my existence has value as long as there are cover-ups? Here again, it's interesting. The term most used in Kabbalah and Chassidus for the opposite of holiness is clipper. Kedusha versus clipper. So some of you were trained and you heard the word clipper, so you know clippers, clipper, clippers, clippers, clippers. But what does the word clipper really mean? Clipper is a very sophisticated term. Clipper means a shell, a husk, a banana shell. It's called a clipper, an orange shell, the shell of an egoise, of a walnut. It's a husk. Why do we call it a klipa? What's the idea of klipa? Of a shell, of a cover, of a husk? But the truth is that the word expresses the essence of what it is. Because whenever something or a person needs to exist within a klipa, within a shell, within a cover-up, it means they're not in touch with their own holiness. It means they're not in touch with their own soul. Kedusha Thrives in openness. Clipa thrives in cover-ups. Anything that is afraid that if you expose it, you remove all the layers, it will cease to exist, needs to have one klipa and another clipper to survive. Kadusha, on the other hand, doesn't need any cover-ups because it exists essentially. It exists innately. And because it exists innately, the person doesn't live a life where they cover things up. So it's a whole different type of reality. There's people who walk around with bulletproof vests. You can't have a real honest conversation with them. They live in a shell. They live in a husk. When I have confidence, I never lie. I can say I'm sorry. Why is it that some people could never say I'm sorry? Why is it? Because to say I'm sorry is a very vulnerable thing. I'm exposing my weakness. I'm saying I made a mistake. Oi, I made a mistake. So you're going to think that what? That I'm lowly. I'm despicable. I'm horrible. Again, my existence is based on cover-ups. But somebody who has an inner always an inner wholesomeness, feature number one. So then they're honest. They're honest about themselves. They're honest about life. They can be vulnerable about their emotions. On the contrary, they can be extremely vulnerable because it does not shatter the core of their identity. That's why you'll see an interesting thing. Whenever you're at a group where people reveal the whole truth about their life, you'll always feel Kedusha there. If you go to places, certain groups of recovery or whatever, where people have no cover-ups, they say the truth complete truth and nothing but the truth about their experiences, about their mistakes, about their emotions, about life, about their feelings and so forth, you could vividly, almost vividly feel a certain energy of spirituality there, a certain energy of godliness there. Because when you remove shells, you remove husks, that's the first catalyst, it's the first springboard for experience, for experiencing something without cover-up. So the Gemara says, Baruch <laughs> The seal of Hashem is truth. That's the basics of Judaism. If Judaism is predicated on the fact that people are not in touch with their own truth and they don't speak their own truth and everyone is busy wearing masks and creating bigger masks and thicker masks, they can't have a relationship. They can't have a relationship with their soul. That's the second feature, Ms. Ms. V'emunah. Now there's a third feature. The third feature has to do with a in Megillus, Esther. It says that Esther was by Ahasuerus, and she fulfilled the wishes of Mordechai. Kasher hoisa ba'amna What does ba'amna mean? Ba'amna, what does it mean ba'amna? That Esther remains loyal. She remains faithful to Mordechai. She's in the palace of Ahasuerus, but she remains ba'amna, she remains loyal and faithful to Mardukha. What does this mean in life? This is the third feature of an emunna based life, a soul-based life. And this you can convey in the one word called "Dvekus, Meaning, when somebody becomes aware of their soul, when somebody becomes aware of their emunah, they become cognizant of the truth. That I may be in the palace of Achashveresh, but I remain ba'amna itoi. I remain faithful, and I remain loyal. There is always a part in you. There is always a dimension in you that exists in absolute dvekas, absolute oneness and intimacy with Hashem, in which there could be absolutely no separation. There are people who walk around all day and all night thinking that they are evil. They're bad. They're messed up. They're dirty. They're tarn- tarnished. They're morally and spiritually filthy because mistakes that they made. And they feel the guilt. They feel the heaviness. And they may have made mistakes. But if this is your perspective on yourself, I am damaged goods. I am bad. I am lowly, it means I am not in touch with my soul, with my neshama. If you would be in touch with your soul, you would know that there's a part of you, the truest part of you, that is absolutely pure, sacred, childlike, untarnished, in complete intimacy with the divine, where no mistake or no sin or no transgression can ever, ever damage it, or tarnish it, or contaminate it. Sometimes, it seems like we look at ourselves, or our loved ones, our children, our students, and we embrace a doctrine that's really from another religion. And that's called original sin. We often look at our boys and our girls. They come into our homes, or they come into our schools, or our communities, and we look at them as guilty till proven innocent. This is the doctrine of original sin. I assume you're bad. If after a few months you will prove yourself that you're behaving and you're living up to my standards, maybe I'm going to change my position about you that you are good. This is one of the great violations of one of the most important doctrines of Amunah and of Yiddishkeit. The lack of of the true understanding and awareness that in your core, presently, right now, there's a space in you which is absolutely wholesome. And it's absolutely sacred. And it's absolutely pure. We say nine times Yom Kippur. Kippur. meaning you know the secrets of the universe you know the hidden secrets of every living creature you see what's inside the kishkes you see in the kidneys and the heart and the intestines of every person nothing is concealed from you and therefore we say please forgive us for all of our sins somebody once asked a question it doesn't make sense If you really see everything that's going on. So you see. I don't see. So I look at you. You look like a tzaddik. But you see. So you see all the dirt. You see all the corruption. You see all the agendas. You see all the politics. You see all the lies. You see all the falsehood. You should say, Hashem, even though you see, please do me a favor. Uvechein means, and therefore, you see everything. And therefore, you should forgive us. What's the therefore? And therefore, you may think you'll never forgive us, still forgive us. But this is, and this, but this is exactly what we're saying. We missed the whole point. <inaudible> because you know the true depth of every person, <inaudible> therefore forgive us because you know that my core self was never engaged in this mistake and this sin. On the contrary, the only reason I did it is because I didn't know who I was. If I would have been in touch with my true I... I would have never engaged in this. I would have never done this. Take a look. This is one of the foundations of the teachings of the Baal Shem Here's a quote from Lakuta Torah. The Just a few lines. But the way he expresses it is absolutely gorgeous. He says, Upchines Yisrael, Roish. Every Jew is called Yisrael. Yisrael is two words. Li Roish, my head. Yisrael, right? Is you have Lee, lamad Yud, and then Reish Aleph Shem. This is the neshama which essentially transcends the body and also transcends reason. It's not just a logical being; it transcends reason. This dimension is always one with Hashem without any separation. And this dimension exists in every single Jew, even in Kal Shabakala, meaning even the most lightheaded person among all the lightheaded ones. So you might think this person is a Kal Kalim, as they used to say. What's a Kal That even the Kalim call him a Kal. <laughs> even those who are lightheaded call him a Kal, right? Even the even the Tzatzkes call him a Tzatzke. So he says, says that this Pekina, which Pekina. That there's no pidud, this echo yachid, completely one with Hashem, exists in every Jew, even a kashav b'kal. Omashe kasev, he asks a gevulde, a kash on himself. Omashe kosov, the pasuk says he koris, he koris on There are certain sins through which you cut your soul off. And let's add to the question: if you read any sifri musar throughout all the generations you will see how often they tell you watch out because if you do this and this, you're dead meat, you're done you're cut off in this world, the next world, the barbecue that you are going to burn in, we cannot even describe the intensity of its heat because of how evil you are, comes here Ayid who wrote a Shulchan Aruch who was one of the greatest masters of halacha, the Baal Atanya Vahashulchan Aruch, and says, he's echad, yochid, umiyuchad. How can he say that this p'china, how can he say that there's an element in a Jew, even in a Kalam, which means a rasha, that is echad, yochid, umiyuchad, with Hashem, belish, shum, without any separation. Here's a Jew who may have dedicated years to his Surah chorus to prohibitions that have the penalty of chorus. How can you say this? This is a, a loaded question. Mach mas <laughs> she'ikir avedis chamuriz. Mach I think, probably. Mach mas she'over avedis shul chayov Because he transgressed serious sins for which he chay chorus. So he answers, he says, wherever the Torah speaks about chorus, it's talking about the dimension of Yaakov. Yaakov is Yud-Eiketh. It's the element of the soul that comes down into the heel, meaning it's a certain element of spirituality which can get cut off. But there's always a state of Yisrael. That's articulated in Teres Hanistin and Teres Abal Shemtev, particularly, and over there there could never be any separation whatsoever. Or as the same author once said, Ayid nishteh can, or nishteh vil sein von elikos." A Jew can't and doesn't want to be separated from godliness. Ah, you'll ask him; he'll tell you, "I can and I want." What do you mean, "I can and I want"? The state of Israel is always in an absolute condition of Dveikos. You could be for years, by but the faithfulness is there and the loyalty is always there. Does this mean the person never made mistakes? Of course the person made mistakes. But they shouldn't confuse making mistakes with concluding that they are a mistake. Or confusing making mistakes with the idea that I am damaged. It's irreparable, irreversible. That's a tragic error. That's a terrible mistake. So living with the soul means that you always know there's a part of you that is completely pure, completely wholesome. And if I don't feel this way, if I can't feel that about myself, then at this moment, I am completely not in touch with my neshama, with my my soul. Which means I'm detached from the truest aspect of myself. I'm gossiping about the Gemara. It says, Now we understand the Diuk is not Yaakov, but, but Yisrael. <laughs> That's the Dveikos. It's a beautiful word from the Choyze of Lublin, Choyze of Lublin once said, we say in Mayrev, So he says, I understand you ask Hashem to remove the Satan from before you, ahead of you, L'Fanenu, he's in front of me. What is he doing in front of me? He's showing me a certain way, a certain path. What's meacharenu? Why is he behind me? What, what does he gain from being behind me? So he says, there's the satan ahead of you who's telling you where to go. But after you do the sin, there's the satan behind you who's telling you, ah, you're a really, really bad person. You're a rotten ap- apple. You're a rotten apple. You're damaged. And in many ways, that satan is worse than the satan Lufanenu, Because for the satan Lufanenu, there's a remedy, you can do tshuva. But for the sense of guilt and shame that you feel horrible and damaged, for this there's no tshuva because you think it's a good thing. <laughs> you think your guilt is spiritual. You think your guilt is coming from your holiness. You were told that you're bad. You tell yourself that you're bad. And when somebody is not in touch with that part of themselves, it means they are detached from their own truth. And that's why it's brought in Zoya and in Chassidus. There's these two levels of truva. There's truva tata and tshuva ilah. The lower level of tshuva, the higher level of tshuva. What's the difference? The lower level of tshuva is a person does tshuva for their mistakes. I made a mistake, I do tshuva. I remorse, I express regret, I say I'm sorry. I make a resolution for the past and I, re- I, I make a resolution for the future just like I regret the past. That's tshuva tata. Tshuva ilah, the higher level of tshuva is something else. It's realizing that there was a part of me that never sinned. There was a part of me that always remained davuk. On the contrary, that part of me, was not only it did not sin, I never sinned because if I would have been I, if I would have known who I really am, if I would have been in touch with I, I would have never sinned. I never sinned. And maybe what I have to do tshuva in tshuva ilah is I have to do tshuva for the fact that I think that I have to do tshuva. Sometimes you have to do tshuva for the fact that you think that you have to do tshuva. For the fact that you don't forgive the you, you don't realize the you, you don't realize the depth, the beauty, the purity, the godliness, the holiness of the you. Sometimes that's the greatest tshuva that you need to do. The tshuva is that you think that you need to do tshuva. In other words, that you are essentially evil and tarnished, for that one has to do tshuva. That's a higher level of tshuva. That relates to a person's pure essence. This is the third component of emunah. It is a part that's always loyal, that's always faithful, that's always good, and do not gossip about yourself, and walk around saying how bad you are. I made mistakes, but it's not the I that made mistakes. It's because I didn't know how beautiful the I is that I made mistakes. You know who I really am. Since you know who I really am, and if somebody else doesn't know who I really am, but you do know who I really am. So that changes... That changes uh, the whole picture. Which brings us now to the fourth feature, which has to do with joy. This has to do with joy, simcha, simcha in life. What makes certain people happy? What makes certain people miserable? Anybody here is happy? What's the secret? What's the idea behind simcha? I once read about uh, an experiment that a scientist made. I read it. I did not research. I did not research it well, so I don't. I can't say that it's an authentic experiment. But somebody brought. I read it once in an essay, and it uh, captive. It. It was very interesting. So that a scientist once. Uh, He took a a number of fleas, you know, the little tiny bugs, and he put them into a glass jar. And the jar was open on the top. So what does a healthy flea do when it's in a jar? They just fly, they just uh, all, uh, fly, you know, they, they, they left the jar, they fly out of the jar. And this, this is fine. Now what he did was... They quickly they quickly uh, they quickly jumped out of the jar, so what did he do? He put the fleas back into the jar, but this time he placed a glass lid over the top. So now the fleas began jumping, trying to fly out, but each time they jumped, they hit the glass lid falling back down into the jar so They tried this hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times, and each time they... Each time they knocked their head into the glass lid, trying to jump out, fly out, and they went back down. So after experimenting with this many, many times, at some point, at some point, they realized something. What did they do? Conditioned to the presence of the glass lid, they began jumping... But, slightly below the glass lid, so that they shouldn't hit, they shouldn't hit their body into the glass lid. So they began jumping, but each time now, they learned exactly the height, how high you can jump and not hurt yourself. Because they didn't want to hit it. The scientist then removed the glass lid. He was expecting what's going to happen. They are going to. Fly out of the lid and be free. But what happens was they did not. They flew till the top and they went back down. They learned to limit themselves from jumping beyond the height of the lid, even though it was removed, because once upon a time they could not fly higher than that, and therefore they learned that they cannot fly higher than that, and they remained imprisoned. They couldn't escape the jar. When I read this, I thought to myself, what is this really about? This is basically a limitation that didn't really exist, but it's a limitation that exists in their mind. It existed in their mind. Since once upon a time they couldn't fly above the lid, so therefore they came to believe that they simply can't. And because they simply can't, They would not even try. I ask you, is this not a metaphor for so many people's lives? At some point, perhaps, when the person was young, they tried to fly, but somebody knocked them over the head and said, you stay in the jar. It could have been a comment. It could have been an experience. It could have been an an encounter, whatever it may be. And sometimes for the rest of their life, They will not fly too high. They will always limit the height that they're ready to jump and fly because of an internal belief that tells them, you can't, you're going to hurt yourself. So who are they imprisoned to? Their own beliefs. Not even themselves, their own beliefs. That's what happens when you don't know who you are. The truth is, I think this is the meaning, there's an extraordinary Evanesra, Rabbi Avraham Eben writes in Parsha Shmoiz this week, why is it that Moshe Rabbeinu, the leader of the first leader of the Jewish people, was not raised among Jews? You would think that Hashem would want that the first leader of the Jewish people should be a homegrown tomato, as they say. He should know what Jews are like, what a Shalom zacha looks like, what a Kiddush looks like, what a Bris looks like, what a Sheve Brachis looks like, what a Jewish parking lot looks like. He should know the Matsov. He came from a different culture. Imagine, Mama, she didn't fit in. That's what Ebenezer asks, an interesting question. So Ebenezer says, Me yavo beside Hashem, who knows? But then he offers two answers. Answer number one, the Ebenezer says is, that if Moshe would have grown up among the Jews, nobody would respect him. The old expression, Ein Navi beirei, some cipher brings it, you can't be a prophet in your own city. Every yenter would come over to him and say, "I remember how you cried by your bris, and I remember when your mother dropped you off in school and you threw a tantrum for three hours and we couldn't calm you down." And every person would tell her, Moshe, Rabbi, no, dein shalom "I remember when you still ran around in pampers." Really, when did you become a novi? Really, you became a novi. When did that happen? We barbecued together. I don't understand. We were eating spear ribs together. When did you become a prophet suddenly? Go handel, go Machanesik with them. Every every Chachim is gonna tell him that he knew him before his Abshannesh, before his mitzvah. Fire the Krig. That's one reason that Ezra gives. Then he gives another reason, astonishing reason. Ezra says that if, if Moshe would have grown up among the Jewish people, you know what the problem would have been? He would have developed a slave mentality and he would not be able to overthrow the Egyptian Empire. Because he would have grown up among slaves full of insecurity and fear. He had to grow up in an atmosphere of aristocracy, in an ambiance of royalty. He had to grow up with Paré himself. He had, so that way he thought of things expansively. He didn't have a gullus mentality. He wasn't mediocre. He wasn't meek. He wasn't surrendered to his fate. He could think big. He could think like a king. So paradoxically... It was Parah who fueled the revolution against Parai, Because only royalty can give you an experience of royalty. That's what Ebenezer says. So essentially it's what the scientists proved or didn't prove with this lid. Because many of us have what I would call an invisible lid. We have an invisible lid. We just don't know it, but it's an invisible lid. You don't see the lid, but it's there. It's there in my fears, it's there in my consciousness. It may be there from childhood or from... Whenever it's there, but It's there. Why? Because I don't know that I'm a chileke lecham mal. I don't know about the part of me that is absolutely free. The part of me that is absolutely confident. The part of me that is absolutely truthful. And the part of me that is absolutely good and holy and therefore powerful and divine and infinite. I don't know about it. I have a lid and I become a prison to my thoughts and beliefs about myself. So what's this third feature of dvekas? It means that whatever happened to you in your life, either by your doing or by other people's doing, there are people and people sitting in this room who suffer with addiction. There are people who have been abused. There are people who have been abused badly. There are people who have been abused as children or or, or, or as adults in physical ways or in psychological ways or both emotionally. And they're very... And they look at themselves as damaged. And they have an invisible lid. We have an invisible lid. We will never jump too high. Because at some point somebody told us we can't. And we bumped our heads and it was painful. And we learned to keep low for the rest of our life. The symptom of a munah means that there's an element of you that reflects the freedom of its creator. It reflects the infinity of its creator. It reflects the power of its creator. That's what real b'chirah means. That's what real choice means. The real soul has real choices. It's free. It's not a slave. It's not a victim to its own fate. And it never deals with a lid. Never has a lid. And therefore, it may be that there are components of me that I have to deal with that are painful. I may have made mistakes, and I may have made serious mistakes, but not because I am a mistake, and not because the mistake has penetrated to my core. That's not true. It's usually the other way around. If I would have been in touch with my eye, I would have never made these mistakes. I didn't know who I was, which is what leads most people to engage in things most destructive because they don't understand their power. They don't understand their depth, and they don't understand their relationship with God And what is really addiction, if not looking for substitutes in things that really only Hashem could fill for you. All addiction is basically a person is looking to fill their void with certain substances or things, and the only one who can really fill that void is God. And I attribute to these substances divine power, but it's ultimately going to fail me because... Today it'll make me satisfied for a few hours, but then tomorrow the void is still there, and I just need more of it, more of it, because that's not where my Yeshua is going to come from. But when you're truly in touch with yourself and that relationship, so then you can fix. The, you can always fix these mistakes because your core, as he says here, there's never kares. You were never cut off. You're always in a state of well-being there. Which now we can understand the concept of of simcha, and here it's important to understand what simcha is. What creates joy in people's life? What makes people happy? There's a few components that I want to emphasize, and they all have to do with a feature of Amunah. Number one, it's, it's extremely important to understand. The soul doesn't need anything to be happy. Oiz v'chedva b'mkaimai. In his space, There's happiness. In the space of the neshama, naturally there's simcha. It's always in touch with its source. And in his space, in Hashem's space, there's confidence and there's joy. The soul doesn't need stimulation in order to get it going, in order to make it basimcha, in order to make it happy. When you're in touch with your soul, your soul is one with the source of all life. There is a natural flow of positive energy and joy. Don't mix up joy with fun. Life is not always fun. Sometimes life is painful, but there's always joy. There's a sense of purpose, a sense of wholesomeness, a sense of simcha, a sense of happiness. The soul doesn't acquire joy from outside. It is in a state of joy. Now when I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling jealous, all of these things, I am right then not in touch with the state of my soul. And it's very important for people to be able to see which side their thoughts are coming from. Let's say I'm feeling very angry, or I'm feeling very jealous, or I'm feeling very stressed. Don't ask yourself why you're feeling jealous, or why you're feeling stressed, or why you're feeling angry. Ask yourself a deeper question, and that is, which part of me is feeling jealous? Which part of me is feeling angry? Which part of me is feeling stressed? And you will see it's not your soul. It's never your soul. yid came to the maid of Primashlan and he said that uh, this other Jew opened up a store on the other side of the city and it's going to destroy his whole business. He said it's the other side of the city. He said it's going to destroy his whole business. He can't rest anymore. His life is destroyed. So the mayor of Primishlan said to him that there's an interesting phenomenon when a horse, if you ever watched, a horse comes to the ocean or to the stream or to the, to the lake to drink. So the horse bends down to start drinking. But before it starts drinking, the horse starts kicking. So heptan brikin stark. The horse starts kicking very strongly. Why? Why? And when it kicks, the water gets murky and dirty and cloudy with the, with the sand. And then the horse drinks. Why? So the Maidal said, I'll tell you why. the I'll explain to you the psychology of the horse. The horse comes to the to the beach, to the stream, to the lake, puts down its head, and is about to drink. And who does the horse see in the water? Another horse. As the horse is looking down into the water, the horse sees a horse. The horse says, <laughs> You come into my territory, my domain. You're going to just take away my water, my Parnosa? So the horse starts kicking. The horse starts kicking. It's trying to kick and destroy the other horse that it sees in the water. So the other horse should go away and the water should be his to drink. The male smiles and he says, No, the horse is making three mistakes. Number one, what the horse sees as his competitor is essentially a reflection of himself. Number two, by kicking, all he's doing is making his own water dirty. And number three, there's enough water for everybody. And the truth is, most jealousy is this. Which part of me is getting jealous? Say, I'm jealous. I'm angry. You said this to me. You're obnoxious. I don't like you. Wait, wait, wait. Remember this: There's never a mitzvah in life that you have emotions about what another person said. I'll say it again: There's no situation in life where you have emotions about what somebody said. Now you're looking at me from which velchelavonezer adab gefallen. Just tonight I got into a fight with somebody because he told me something. And I told him that he's a narcissistic, selfish person. I didn't tell him, but I thought it. We never emote from something that somebody else said or did. Our emotions are coming from the way we think about what they said or did. It's the way we process what they said. You say something. Challenge yourself. We say... He's obnoxious. I hate him. I'm angry at him. No, no, no. Wait one second. Before you go there, how did you experience what he said? What are the thoughts? He said so and so. You had a thought in response to that. It's the thought that made you feel the way you feel. The Tanya always says, midas come from seichel. Meaning, if you change the way you think, you change the way you feel. But this takes a lot of work. Because we don't even realize the way we think. We take for granted that our thoughts are... That's not true. Your thoughts are your thoughts. The person said what they said. What are my thoughts about what they said? The person did what they did. What am I experiencing? How am I processing it? That is what's producing my emotions. So you always have to ask the question, I'm angry, I'm jealous... Which part of me is angry and jealous? What are the thoughts that created that anger and jealousy? And did those thoughts come from the clip in me, or they came from the chalik elakami mal in me? Did those thoughts come from the shells in me? Which they may have, or they came from the part in me that is absolutely one with the divine? Which part? I'll tell you. If the thoughts came from the part that's completely divine, you probably would not be jealous. You probably would not be angry. Because when you're in that space, you're good. You're good. Why do we get angry in life? People get angry because they feel powerless. I get angry because I feel powerless in this situation. Your chayle mal never feels powerless. On the contrary, it always feels empowered. And what's its power? Its power is that this situation happened... And it allows me an opportunity to work on myself and to accomplish something. So simcha in the soul is a natural state. The soul, the soul is naturally happy. When we see people are happy, we want to know what they're taking. We expect people to be miserable. When people are miserable, everything is wonderful. When we see people are happy, we want to know what's wrong. Are oh, you want something? Something happened. You won the lottery. But that's not the case. The natural, look at a child, the natural state of a human being is to be happy, to celebrate life, not to worry and be anxious, but our thoughts take us over and every experience stresses us out. And the real main point here is that the soul always knows that in every situation there's meaning, this purpose, I am where I have to be, I'm in the right place, I'm in the right time and I am given all the resources I need to achieve what I have to achieve in this place, in this situation. It may be a challenging situation, but happiness doesn't mean fun. Happiness means a sense of inner contentment and fulfillment, of knowing I'm capable of doing the right thing in this situation, and that's a gift that a person has. Where does this come into the word amuna? This is the fourth feature that has to do with First of all, of course, trust. and is in trust, betachen, which is the cause of simcha, but also the word umnus. Umnos. Why? Because this attitude allows the person to be able to see the art in every single situation. I should be able to see every moment as a maisa umnus. I should be able to see the artistic component, the umnus the Maisa Umnus in every situation. It was fashioned by an uman, by the great craftsman who brought me to this place, put me in this situation, I'm in this place, I'm in this time, and I have all the resources that I need in order to achieve my koyach, to achieve my mission in this particular place. That's what simcha ultimately is. That's what joy is. The final feature is love, ava. Vayhi oymen as hadassah. Mardachai nurtured. He nursed. He gave. He was there for hadassah. She didn't have parents, and he became, so to speak, uh, the stiff Tata, the stiff mama. He, he raised her. This is another major quality of, of the soul. Rabbi Sol Salanter, founder of the Muslim movement, once saw a Jew eating chicken. And Kaminig, Hanegidim, him, he was eating the chicken with a lot of passion. And uh, Rabbi Saul Salanta said, Why are you eating the chicken with so much passion? So this Jew said, Because I love the chicken. So he says, You really love the chicken? He says, Yeah. He says, Wow, is this what you do to all those you love? <laughs> you have them killed and plucked and sliced, and sauteed, and boiled, and cooked, and then converted into your blood. Is this what you do with all you love? You don't love the chicken. You love your abdomen. You love your taste buds. You love your stomach. And the chicken is a heichitimtza, in your love of yourself. So here's the big question. Are we really capable of loving? A philosopher once said, we don't love other people, we love our version of them. Am I really capable of, of love? Am I really capable of loving another person? You would think, I'm capable of loving myself. If you can help me achieve my goals, then I love you, but it's like the Mishnah says, "Avat it's conditional. As long as you do what I need... So then I love you because essentially I love me. And I love you only because the you somehow contributes to the me. And if the you would not contribute to the me, I would never ever love you. But I can't really love you. I can only love me. And you, as long as you're doing something for the me, I can love you. I don't love the chicken, I love myself. The chicken tastes good, so I say I love the chicken. Is our love to others really different? I love you because... You enrich my life, however you enrich my life, physically or spiritually or emotionally, or you're a companion, whatever it is you do for me, that's why I love you. That's on one level, that's true. But on the level of the soul, there's here a person is truly capable of love. So when the convert, when the Gentile comes to Hillel, in Shabbos, and says, teach me all of Torah on one leg, Teach me the whole Torah on one foot. How long can you stand on one foot for? Let's say 40 seconds. Teach me everything there is in Judaism in 40 seconds. So Hillel says, no problem. What you dislike to be done to you, don't do to anybody else. That's the whole Torah. Everything else is commentary. Go study the commentary. So Rashi asked the question, how could you say the whole Torah is about human relationships? Hilchis mezuzah, hilchis tzitzit, hilchis all the halachas, ben adam lamakim What does it have to do with? I understand, like sirtsach, like signav, like What you dislike to be done to you, don't do that to anybody else. But that's only half of Judaism. All the mitzvahs is about what you like to be done to you, don't do to somebody else. What does it have to do with mezuzah? What does it have to do with not eating on Yim Kippur? What does it have to do with keeping Shabbos? Most of the halachas don't have to do with personal relationships. At least many don't. But the truth is as follows. Every single mitzvah is there to open up a window to the soul. Every mitzvah opens up a window to the chilek kamimah, And the only way a person can really love is when they're in touch with that place in themselves. Because when I'm in touch of that place within myself, two things happen. First of all, I could love wildly and passionately and I'm not afraid. We're often afraid of loving. Because love is vulnerable. Love is attachment. Love is taking risks. If I don't love you, if I live in solitary confinement, you ever see how people give Shalom Aleichem? It's like a shchiv meira. <laughs> Or how people say, yes, yeah, shekoyach, 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 I can't love because it's dangerous. If I stay in my own Daladamas, if I stay in my own cocoon, I'm safe. To love passionately, to love violently, well I don't mean literally violently, but I mean to love like Sholeim HaMelech says, to love with real passion, it's very vulnerable. It's very vulnerable. So you really have to be truly confident to be able to love with all your soul, to love others, and if you can't love others, you can't love Hashem, even to love yourself, even your own loved ones, to really, really love, not just selfishly, but really love. That's number one. But it's deeper because when I recognize my chelik elekam mal, then I can truly love you because on that level there's real oneness. Because the God who I am a part of, you're also a part of. And if I really love myself, I really love you, it doesn't mean only love your friend as much as you love yourself. It means love your friend... Like you love yourself. It's an extension of loving yourself. Because which part of yourself do you really love? If I can't love you, it means I don't love me. I love my suit. I love my nose. I love my bank account. I love my car. I love my watch. And some people just love that. And all their life they're investing in buying things. So they should be able to love themselves. And be able to say I'm a success story then I can't love you. But if I love my real self, if I love my true self, if I love my true identity, my true core, which is part of Hashem, so then that's in you too. So I can really, really cherish and respect and embrace that part in you too. That's in you too. It's one. On that level there's real oneness. So if I truly love the true I, then I love the true you. So then, Ava is not just an option. Ava is the natural state. Love is the natural state. It's not that I have to subdue myself and force myself and challenge myself. It's really the natural state of the person. <speaking in Hebrew> I can be the true ultimate nurturer because I'm in touch with that part of myself. So Hillel says, <speaking in Hebrew> The whole Torah is a commentary on how to love. The whole Torah. Why is the halachas of Yom Kippur a commentary on how to love? The halachas of not eating meat and milk is a commentary on how But not eating meat and milk. Because it's all there to be able to get you in touch with your soul. Everyone, every single Allah, every mitzvah. And if you get in touch with your soul, that's the key to love. So therefore, Hillel says that's, that's, uh, that's kala terikula. So I saw this story that I want to conclude with. And, um, I thought it's quite a story that captures this message. It's about a senator, a U.S. senator, His name was David Rice Acheson. David Rice Acheson. What's the yichis of David Rice Acheson? How does he end up here in 184 March 4th. So since this is uh, the campaign for the next president of the United States is in full full force and fiery passion, so I guess the story is appropriate. The inauguration, March 4th. 1850, a couple of years ago, was the scheduled inauguration date of President-elect Zachary Taylor. This was the day that Taylor was supposed to be inaugurated, March 4th, 1850. The problem is, it was a Sunday, and he was a faithful observer of what used to be called the Christian Sabbath. So therefore, Taylor refused to be inaugurated as president. On that day, he said it has to wait till Monday. I'll become president on Monday. This would leave the nation without a president for 24 hours because uh, Taylor's predecessor, President uh, James Polk, he already left office as scheduled Sunday at noon. And there was no new president till Monday at noon. So the nation for 24 hours would be without a president. So, according to the rules of succession, who would fill the shoes of the president of the U.S. for those 24 hours? It was Senator Atchison. He was to be the president for one day. Unfortunately, David Rice Atchison was very fond of food, but he was also very fond of a good drink. Saturday night, there were very large and festive inauguration parties. And Atchison overdid it a little bit. And uh, he ate and he drank into the wee hours of uh, the morning. And he said, I'm exhausted. And he gave strict instructions. Nobody should wake him up. Nobody should wake him up. So you know what happened? He slept through all Sunday. And by the time he woke up, it was Monday afternoon. He slept through his entire presidency. (laughs) He simply slept through his entire presidency. I ask you a question. Is this not the story of so many lives? Exactly the same story. We forget that we're children of the king. We sleep through our presidency We sleep through great possibility, great potential. Instead of living lives of greatness, we settle for mediocrity. To be a senator is nice, but it's not a president. Ask Hillary. (laughs) We forget that though not always great ourselves, we are always connected to a greatness beyond ourselves a potential that is absolutely infinite. We forget that we're the sons and daughters of royalty. We were given the gift to literally be able to create transformation because of the divine core that's in us. We say, I wish, I wish I can have coffee with a friend and help him. He's hurting, but I'm too stressed out to take on somebody else's sorrows. I know the new kid in school really needs a new friend, but I can't do anything about it. I got my own problems. We convince ourselves we can't be any kinder, more compassionate, less angry, more understanding. We convince ourselves that our marriages are destined to be war zones. That shalom bias, happiness on our home is not a real option. Fighting in our house will endure. We convince ourselves we can't be liberated. We can't free ourselves of addictions bad habits, instincts, anger, stress, anxiety, depression, sadness, melancholy, simply because we don't know who we are. We think like slaves. What was yesterday will be tomorrow. And I am always the victim. The five features of an emuna based life, of a life in which you live with your soul is... To change that paradigm, it begins with changing your thoughts. You learn to discover real confidence that's always there. And then you learn to discover real honesty that was always there. You learn to discover your intimacy, your dvekas, that was always there. You learn to discover your joy that is always there. And you learn to discover the gift of love that was always there. Have a wonderful week. Thank you, Rabbi. We know oh that right? the, always is the same confidence. You have to have inner peace. Yeah, and then you have inner peace. I know it's in the toilet, because the toilets is who got connected yeah. to the yeah, toilet. Yeah, yeah, But thank you. Yeah. So for every religious person.